Synthetic human embryos created in groundbreaking advance. Scientists create early stage model of human embryos from skin cells. USDA allows lab-grown meat to be sold to US consumers. What on earth are scientists up to? The views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the views of my employer. They are my own thoughts and opinions. Hello, welcome to the Crossover Connections with Jack Wayne podcast. My name is Jack Wayne. I'm a scientist and a college professor at an Australian university. And this is my podcast that talks about science, technology, and productivity and how all the latest headlines in those areas are actually much more connected than we thought. It was around December last year when I was invited to go onto a panel talking about science headlines in a funny, off-the-cuff, comedic way. Everyone on the panel seemed to know way more about all the headlines in science than I did because I seem to have tunnel vision about the area of science that I work in. I'm a microbiologist, so I study tiny microscopic organisms and invisible things. And we've had our hands full in the last few years, certainly, looking at infectious diseases across the globe. Having the bandwidth to look at other headlines in different areas of science was something that wasn't part of my daily habit. This podcast is my way of forcing myself to look at the headlines very consistently over a long period of time. And hopefully that gives me a broader grasp of scientific discovery, I would be embarrassed the next time I'm invited to join a comedy panel. I'm back now with season two. For those of you who listen to season one, Amanda is a manager of clinical research and I don't think she could really commit to this weekly grind. She's still helping out with the behind the scenes of it, doing the research and find the articles, but I think it'll be more of a solo showing going forward. The idea for anything to grow is to maintain a constant presence in your feeds and also doing a weekly release schedule will let me respond to the headlines a little bit more. The headlines for this week are all around the shenanigans the scientists appear to be doing in pushing the worst fears in all the science fiction movies and novels and making them a reality. The first headline talks about the idea that scientists are making synthetic embryos. For humans, we all begin at a single cell and those cells divide and form the rest of our bodies. So really, our skin, our liver, our kidney and our brain and heart tissue originally still came from a single cell. So at some point in time, our bodies had a cell that could morph and develop into any part of our body once it's fully matured. This kind of work exploits that part of technology to use a stem cell to make a more complicated organism. How complicated is the issue there, isn't it? If we could make a whole human and grow them in a test tube from a single cell, that is very scary. As a scientist, I find that quite scary to contemplate how we can regulate that. Having the ability and the responsibility, terrifying, even for scientists. But I think as you read on, that's not actually what's happening here. A living cell-based structure that resembles the beginnings of what an embryo could eventually look like. There's a lot of caveats there, isn't there? If this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then ultimately it might look something like a little bit of a facsimile of a full embryo. So we're still many, many stages away from growing full-fledged humans in a test tube. We're, we're not there yet and this article is not claiming that we're there yet but really you can see the structures that are made from these stem cells do not have a beating heart or the beginnings of a brain which is the main telltale sign of a cognitively aware living organism but they do include cells that would go on to form the placenta, the yolk sac and the embryo itself. So really the emergence and the beginnings of a structure that could eventually form an embryo not an embryo, not a human. And what this particular professor from the University of Cambridge and uh, Caltech, California Institute of Technology said is that we can create human embryo-like models 
by reprogramming stem cells. And there's no near-term prospect of these embryos being used clinically because they're not embryos, first of all. But even if they were embryos, it's illegal to then implant them inside patients' wombs. Likelihood of an embryo surviving and growing in a test tube alone is very, very unlikely. Dolly the sheep, you may have heard of. Dolly the sheep is a cloned animal. That only really worked when the embryo was then implanted put into uh, another mother's womb to carry that to full term. So we can't actually do all of this, to my understanding, completely in a test tube. Right now, we can grow cells and we can grow cells that will eventually look like embryos. But really, growing embryos beyond 14 days, beyond two weeks is illegal. When we look at people who are pregnant and we want to understand more about the health of the baby and maybe why some mothers unfortunately have sick babies or they have some complications in their pregnancy, usually the problem is not 14 days. Usually the problem is a little later on, a couple of months into their pregnancy. And right now with this legal limit of examining embryos in the lab up to 14 days, that really compromises our ability to interpret what's going on with these kinds of pregnancy complications. Not to mention the embryos that are donated for research, that's a pretty small pool because it's very heavily regulated. A lot of this is illegal all across the world. The actual work has really been to say there are stem cells in mice, they can self-assemble into early embryo-like structures with the beginnings of a brain and a beating heart, but that's in mice, it's not in humans. And also these are not embryos that are technically defined to be embryos. They're just the beginnings of those embryos. The more interesting conversation is, well, if it actually turns into something that is a real-life human, a real-life embryo, can we trust this technology to anyone, to scientists, to governments, to regulators, to anyone? Can this type of breakthrough actually be trusted in this kind of framework? The fact that you're hearing about it right now is a really good sign that there is some common sense in this kind of work. The scientists are very aware of all of the triggers in society about human life and young babies, a triggering concept for many, many people, understandably so. This kind of work has promise in terms of the good that it can do, but the scientists who are advancing this work have already self-nominated an ethical oversight process and a regulatory framework, both legally and morally and ethically. You may have heard of this kind of work a bit over the years in the news from 2021, where a series of Australian scientists, they were able to hack skin cells and turn them into cells that more resemble embryos. When we all begin, when we are conceived as humans, we begin as a single cell. And that cell has the potential to turn to any kind of cell in the body, skin cells, as well as brain cells and heart cells, all these kinds of cells. And these researchers in Monash University in Melbourne, they reprogrammed skin cells into 3D structures that look like the early stages of human embryos. In 2021, it was found that they really can't do much beyond resemble what embryos may look like eventually. They are not full embryos, a quasi-exciting discovery. It's not a true, true breakthrough in the true sense of it, but already it's triggering all of these ethical concerns and all of these regulatory frameworks that people are thinking about layering on top of the science and the science fiction that this might imply would happen throughout the world overnight. A recurring theme of the podcast is we want to de-escalate the excitement and fear around science and really communicate that science is exciting in a different way than you might imagine. Exciting because it is vulnerable to all the frailties of the human condition. The innovation very rarely is a eureka moment. 
very rarely is it an overnight success. It is the product of constant heartbreaking rather than groundbreaking iteration. It is piece by piece of the puzzle, trial and error, tried against every direction, compete against every scientist in the world to make that incremental breakthrough. Cells are very vulnerable. And to get the cells into a form where they will become an embryo and they will become a human being is slow and very frustrating. So these are promising signs, but for it to become a fully fledged human, completely grown and developed by a scientist, Frankenstein or whatever other allegory you can think of in nightmarish children's fiction, we are nowhere near that. We are nowhere near that. It makes for a really catchy headline, the fact they were able to change cells into another kind of cell that kind of more closely resembles a, a human embryo at some later stage of life, but we're not there. Cells are not actually fully functioning organisms. If it's a bacterial cell, then yes, one single cell for bacteria is enough for them to start making a population of bacteria and cause disease. But in multicellular organisms, you need all of these cells working together in different organs to really achieve consciousness and cognition and awareness and all of those things we typically associate with being human. I just want to de-escalate how scared you should be of this. You should be excited by the possibility, but also be aware that this is much slower than most of these headlines would like to tell you that it's happening at. Maybe a more realistic application of this is the other headline for this week, which is all around lab growing meat. In the US, the USDA allows lab-grown meat to be sold to US consumers. After Singapore, the US becomes the second country in the world to allow sale of meat grown from animal cells. And this has been driven in the US by two companies, Upside Foods and Good Meat. And they were given uh, permission. So USDA is US Department of Agriculture. And specifically, they're going to make chicken grown from animal cells in large metal vats. I've got a lot of thoughts on this, but first let's see what the article says about the viability of this technology and what's going to happen. The nascent lab-grown meat sector, I like that phrasing, the nascent lab-grown meat sector. It's gathered pace over the last few years, lots of startups trying to jostle for a piece of this market. If you can be the first to market with a meat product that is quote-unquote more sustainable, that's a huge claim to have and you could be very smug about maybe all the environmentally friendly claims. They're not vegetarian, they're meat grown in a setting more familiar to the pharmaceutical industry rather than the food industry. They take some cells from an animal without harming the animal and then they grow those cells to a point where it resembles meat. The fact that you can buy these products in a restaurant means it's more likely to impact your everyday life straight away. So this is a more realistic example of scientists' ability to grow cells. That claim of it being more ethical or more sustainable meat that's grown in a lab rather than meat that is taken from animal is quite questionable because to grow cells in a flask or in a metal vat like these startups are claiming to do both labor intensive resource intensive in terms of the energy required to run those metal vats those incubators the chemicals needed to keep those cells alive all of that takes so much energy and planning and troubleshooting and experimenting these are startups after all so many of them will fail especially when the reagents are so expensive, I don't think you can make the claim that it's actually better or more sustainable. It is similar to the argument we're making about AI currently, about artificial intelligence being so efficient and so productive and it's transforming how the whole world works. The secret about AI is that for it to work well and give you good human-like responses, a lot of humans have to vet 
and train those data sets in the beginning, coupled with the enormous processing power that needs to be done by machines to calculate words that are coming out of something like ChatGPT. And that is burning up a whole lot of environmental resources as well. There's a lot of indirect consequences or unintended consequences of any kind of big breakthrough, whether or not these kinds of lab-grown meats will actually be more efficient is a big question mark. Another interesting perspective to look at is if it looks like chicken and smells like chicken, will it take off? Because you can invest all this money and make oodles of this meat, but if consumers don't view it as the same, they won't be willing to partake. And that industry, that sector will never have the enough capital to be able to take it to the next level. Which brings me to this article from Inverse. A person, a writer here, they looked at chicken which I think has been uh, grown in the lab and battered here or crumbed and then fried. They've had it on some kind of bun and it tastes like chicken, doesn't necessarily feel like chicken. The meat has a texture that's somewhere between fish and dark meat poultry and it's grown in a vat that resembles the machine at a dairy factory. Chicken meat that actually never clucked as a fully grown chicken is grown in a vat. How does it actually work? The company extracts cells from chickens that we already eat, parts of chickens that includes muscles and skin tissue. Then they breed these cells, grow them in these giant metal vats or these flies and then they analyze them and then allow them to produce over and over again quality tissue. Sounds really appetizing so far, right? Quality tissue. And they engineered them to make them en masse. On top of that, they have to give these cells food. Cells don't grow without food. So they need to give them amino acids, fatty acids, sugars, trace elements, salts, and vitamins. And all of these are a proprietary mix. The companies can't tell you exactly what they give these cells because that's their secret source. That's how they're going to make the money. And once they grow them into this enormous enormous vessel, take it out, dehydrate it, flatten it and sell it like you would sell chicken at a supermarket, except the production of that is a completely different process. It doesn't actually involve animal beyond initially scraping the cells from those animals at the beginning. What did this person say about how it tasted? Person in question eating this chicken and the texture was close to, to real chicken, slightly uncanny. He also gives out too much information. Journalist said he was a bit more gassy for the rest of the day. Okay, I didn't need, didn't need to know that, but I guess the digestion of that chicken would be a little different than how we would digest other chicken. So the technology looks like it has promise on a consumer level. It looks like chicken, it tastes like chicken. I guess the question will be, scalability. How will this be able to be mass produced? Because I'm going to come back to that point I made earlier. Science is not exciting for the reason you think it is. It is simultaneously much more interesting than you realize and also really, really way more boring than you care to want to know. Because to get to this point where you've got a neat little piece of engineered chicken growing in a test tube, there is so much routine, boring, step-by-step protocol optimization that has to go in for this to even become an economic reality. And I'm going to show you two bits of reagents that we very routinely use in a lab to culture a tiny little bit of animal cells. So these are cells you can buy from large tissue banks. They are not collected from live animals. They were what we call immortalized. These are cells that are designed to grow and keep growing. Often they're isolated from patient tumor samples, patients who have cancer, those tumors are donated to science. And the good thing about tumor cells in this context is that tumor cells, they are engineered to grow and grow. That's their programming. They want to overgrow and double because we need a lot of cells to work with to be able to study these processes again and again and again. But they need a lot of food and that food is very expensive. Two reagents I'll show you. The first one is DMEM, D-M-E-M, and this is sold from a number of companies, but this is from Thermo Fisher Scientific. This red nutrient media has a lot of different things in it, including glucose, including sugars, which allows these cells to be living, A, in a kind of semi-hydrated environment 
environment. So it's not completely dehydrated throughout its lifespan and also gives it some sugar and other nutrients. You can see that one liter of it costs about a hundred Australian dollars. But really, if you're making giant vats of meat uh, to be sold across the country of the United States, you will need way more than a liter of this liquid right? You will need thousands and thousands of liters. So this cost starts going up. This price is not for the cells. This is just for the food to give the cells. I'm not a farmer, so I don't know how much chicken feed costs, but this is pretty expensive chicken feed. Right? This is $100 for one liter, and you can scale that up exponentially depending on how much chicken you want to engineer. This is just the tip of the iceberg because this is actually not enough nutrients for most of the cells to live in. The cells need another layer on top of that most of the time. They, they need something that's called serum. And the most common serum that we we use in a tissue culture lab is something called fetal bovine serum. And it is essentially serum that has a lot of factors that promote growth in it. Growth factors, hormones, lipids, sugars, vitamins, proteins that help those cells attach to surfaces and keep growing very comfortably. And this is the most common one. And it's very expensive as well. It's usually isolated from cows of bovine. You can see that there's a long drawn out process of collecting this serum. You've got to then screen it because you do not want toxins. You do not want bacteria to be within this serum. You're giving it to cells that are living in a flask, so they're pretty fragile anyway. This is a very expensive process for both collecting it and packaging it and assuring that it has a certain amount of quality assurance. If we look at the cost of this for half a liter, we're talking eight to 900 Australian dollars. That price has gone up. It used to be $500. So we're talking for a liter of this serum, about $1,000, in excess of $1,000 for this serum. So the combination of the nutrient media and the serum, when you add those two things together, we're talking thousands of dollars just for a tiny little flask of cells that we work with in a tissue culture lab. If you're talking giant metal vats, man, that cost starts escalating. And again, I'm not a farmer, but that is some pretty expensive chicken feed. I think this is really exciting and this is more likely to reach us and impact our everyday lives than something like the synthetic human embryo. The cost of it will be very, very interesting to watch out for going forward because we know as scientists doing these experiments that culturing cells is not cheap and we're working with much smaller volume of cells than people trying to make it into this chicken meat that you can sell all over the world. That brings us to the recurring segment on the podcast and my favorite segment, which is Whose Job Is It Anyway? where we talk about how science, tech, and productivity can inform the way we approach our jobs and careers heading into the future. Where is all of this innovation in growing cells gonna lead us into? Maybe if this sector takes off, the people who work in tissue culture, which by and large are scientists, they will have a commercial outlet. If you know how to extract protein or if you know how to grow cells, which is a pretty hard skill to learn, actually. It took me a better part of two years to learn how to do tissue culture properly, right? So that's not an easy skill to master. That biotech work has now more of a commercial appeal in addition to drugs and medication. Right? So there's yet another outlet for that sector to make some money. So I think it's really, really exciting. If you've got skills in this space, if you know how to work with molecular biology, work with cells, work with proteins, there is yet another field and sector in which this can be applied. That's really great news. And also, if you are an undergrad student thinking about what skills you might want to learn, research or the private sector or government, or if you want to start up your own entrepreneurial venture, this is a pretty good skill set to have in your toolkit because it is being applied 
for both really exciting advances in embryonic research as well as getting some new kinds of chicken onto the menu at your favorite burger joint. I'm going to pose one more, the cosmetic industry. It's not a real news article. It's kind of one of these uh, infomercials that you see on, on fashion websites. This is from Vanity Fair. So straight away, a disclaimer, Vanity Fair is obviously not a journalistic outlet in science and tech. They're in this uh, amorphous celebrity culture kind of space. No shade, just that's what they are. And it's kind of a way for them to sell these skin products, right? But what they've decided to highlight in this article is peptides explained. How a skincare supercharger became beauty's big buzzword. And they're talking about wrinkles and dark spots. Okay, so cosmetics is an enormous industry. And if the work that we do in science has any parallels in the sector, that's yet another commercial outlet that can help uplift and maybe in some cases fund foundational research we need to do to understand the basic processes of life just that little bit better. This article really goes into try to explain exactly what peptides are. Peptides, when you break it down, they are the fundamental building block of protein. And protein is used in all our cells, but also protein is a huge component, if not the primary component of meat. So it's a really common thing in any kind of biological system. For some reason, the beauty industry doesn't use the word protein, doesn't use the word amino acid, which is actually more accurate for what they're describing. They use the word peptide. I don't really know why. We use the word peptide as a very, very generalistic description of a collection of amino acids. It's not a full protein necessarily, but if you've got a few amino acids chained together, we call them in the scientific community peptides. The beauty industry has hijacked it because they've spoken to a couple of dermatologists surgeons and dermatologists about what peptides are. This is their explanation. And for those of you who are scientists, just prepare to cringe a little bit. A brief biology refresher on amino acids, the fundamental building blocks within the body. Good start. A small chain of amino acids forms a peptide. A chain of peptides, meanwhile, creates a protein. This dermatologic surgeon says peptides often act as little biological messengers, carrying information from one cell to another. He's not wrong. I'm trying to simplify for maybe the audience that this publication is attending. The function that a specific peptide carries out is dependent on the types of amino acids involved in a chain and a sequence, as well as the specific shape of the peptides. When applied topically, peptides can trigger skin cells to perform functions like producing collagen, elastin, two proteins that help serve as a skin scaffolding, as well as encouraging hyaluronic acid synthesis, pigmentation reduction, a huge gold mine of investment that we need to make to make these skin products A, really safe, but B, very effective, because this is something that has enormous commercial potential if the scientific community can tap into it more than we currently are, because they're talking about things like like peptides as if all peptides are very similar and they're using peptides as the catchphrase. Some peptides are really deadly. There's a lot of poisons that are peptides as well. Very much a black box to most people who use or consume cosmetic products in some way, shape or form. And just like that chicken example where we can use the hardcore nerdy science that we use to grow cells in a lab and transpose that into a burger restaurant where you're making chicken that is more sustainable in some ways and not quite as ethically compromising as killing a whole bunch of animals so that we can eat them. This is yet another avenue that we can apply those skill sets towards understanding how the general public cares about the work we do. And they certainly care about cosmetics. They certainly care about their own appearance. This is a huge market. And I think the way they're talking about peptides shows it's very much in its infancy. That sector really doesn't understand this technology much at all. And that's something that we can tap into to further improve our employability and the broad appeal of science as something that everyone should know a little bit 
about. And that brings me to the end of this episode. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, as well as Google Podcasts, as well as the full episodes are on the YouTube channel, BioLab Collective with Jack Wayne. Have you like to engage with us? That's perfectly okay with me. You can find all the links to my work, my website, my email newsletter, links in the show notes below, as well as all the articles we talked about today. I'm Jack and hope to connect with you again next time around.